0: Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, James 5, verses 13 through 18. Hear the word of God. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Amen. Father God, we submit to your word. It is our desire to uh, fear you, to follow you. I pray, Father, that as uh, uh, we hear your word, you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach it and each one of us to love and cherish and put into practice your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. One of the things I absolutely love about the book of James is that it Addresses the controversies of our day in such a clear and precise manner, and uh, we have covered quite a few controversies. The one we're going to obviously be covering today is the subject of healing. Very easy to go to extremes on this subject, and I thought I'd begin with a story that illustrates one of those extremes. Um, there is a this is a true story. A guy by the name of uh, Mac had uh, been telling his wife, who was a diabetic, that the reason she wasn't being healed was either she had sin in her life or that she did not have enough faith. And she was so devastated with this constant guilt. She had confessed her sins over and over again and said, Lord, are there any other sins, you know, that I need to confess? And she had tried to step out in faith. For example, her husband, based on the advice of the the so-called faith healer, had said, that uh, you need to throw away your insulin because that's no faith, okay? And so she threw away her insulin, and uh, he kept insisting, all believers should be able to be healed. And so we just need to trust the Lord, go out, and after repeated trips to the faith healer and nothing happened and repeated trips to the hospital because of complications for not being on insulin, she began to just become very bitter and wondering what in the world is the Lord up to on this, and even some bitterness against her husband. Now, that story is not the exception in many charismatic circles. Uh, that could be multiplied thousands of times over because of a misunderstanding of what God's Word teaches about the, the doctrine of healing. What are we to think about healing? The Bible says an enormous amount about it, and we're not going to be mature if we don't understand what the Bible says, now, James does not address everything that could be addressed about healing, okay? There's a ton more in other scriptures, but I think there's sufficient here that it can help us to be mature. It can help us to be balanced on this subject. Now, let me illustrate the other extreme. Some have discounted healing completely. And when you look at the thousands of stories like the one I told you, uh, you can begin to understand why they have done that. Some for theological reasons. B.B. Uh, B. Warfield thought that, All examples of healings were either outright hoaxes or were demonic. He thought that healing had stopped, it had finished. There are no more miracles today, that those um, uh, were refined to the age of the apostles. There are others who have discounted all miracles simply because they have seen so much fakery out there. Uh, You've probably all seen the videotape uh, clipping of Peter Popov, you know, uh, doing his Uh, word of knowledge, calling out to people, and maybe heard the... You haven't? Everybody's looking at me cross-eyed. Okay. Well, there were some uh, reporters that went into the service trying to figure out what was going because uh, he had such fame and acclaim, you know, for his word of knowledge, the healings and stuff that took place, and they were examining it and exposed it to be a total fraud, absolute fraud. Um, They managed to intercept the radio frequency that his wife was uh, beaming into his ear and so his word of knowledge actually came from his wife not from uh, from god and she had already culled all the information as people came in and signed in and got the names and addresses what their diseases were and everything and so he'd do these amazing things that god had just given him a word of knowledge you know and it's such and such a name and let's see here God saying that that uh, you have this disease and you live at such and such an address and these guys are just blown away, and they're coming up to the, to the front, and he tells people, you know, throw all of your, your pills onto, the, onto the, the stage and whatnot. So you see things like that. You see that kind of fraud. I don't know how many of you here have read Randy's book. Um, okay. Uh, Randy and Kurtz, there's a number of other people who have uh, written some books, and they've devoted a pile of time to try to expose the, the fraud and superstition that is out there. You read those books, it's very easy to go to the opposite extreme and discount everything as being fraudulent. But the fact that there are a lot of frauds out there does not disprove healing any more than the fact that there is a lot of fool's gold out there disproves the presence of real gold. In any case, in Christian circles, you often have people going to one of two extremes. There is people who never expect any miracles whatsoever from God, and then there's people on the other extreme. Man, they're expecting miracles every day as if it's their daily right, and their moment by moment right for God to be doing miracles at their beck and call. And the mature position is somewhere uh, in between that James uh, gives. And I thought what I would do, rather than going through it phrase by phrase like I normally do, what I was going to do is just Tear apart the passage by asking it questions that arise from this controversy. And before we get there, let me read you a quote from J.I. Packer. He says, reacting against flat tire versions of Christianity. Okay, we sure don't want to be flat tire Christians, do we? Reacting against flat tire versions of Christianity which play down the supernatural and so do not expect to see God at work, the super supernaturalist constantly expects miracles of all sorts, Striking demonstrations of God's presence and power, and he is happiest when he thinks he sees God acting contrary to the nature of things, so confounding common sense. For God to proceed slowly and by natural means is to him a disappointment, almost a betrayal but his undervaluing of the natural, regular, and ordinary shows him to be romantically immature and weak in his grasp of the realities of creation and providence as basic to God's work of grace. And so what we're talking about today is how do we gain maturity on this subject of healing? How do we approach it in a way that best glorifies the Lord? The first question that I want to address is this. Does God want you sick? Now, I know that some of you have been taught that God does not want you to be sick. Satan wants you sick, but God never wants you to be sick. Well, you may not like the answer to my question, but if you are sick, I would say, well, of course God wants you to be sick. You know, he is sovereign. You wouldn't be sick if he didn't want you to be sick. And the question comes, does he want you to remain sick? Well, the answer to that in most cases is probably no. He doesn't want you to remain sick. But in verse 13 James obviously assumes there are going to be sick people in every congregation and later we're going to be seeing how the Greek implies not all will be healed even though that there were first century people who were in direct contact with the apostles not all would be healed and in verse 15 he implies some sicknesses are a direct result of God's loving discipline over sin Okay, so I think it's important to realize that God is the one who brings disease and he is the one who heals your cold, whether you use medicine or you don't use medicine. Uh, Only God can make your medicine uh, be effective. Now, let me give you some examples to show that God brings disease and not just Satan. Some people just immediately, they attribute every disease that is out there to Satan and uh, they think that God would not be involved in that. Uh, I want to disabuse you of that and say, no, God wants you sick sometimes. God himself directly brings it. Micah 6, verse 13, gives sin as being one of many reasons why God sometimes wants us sick. Therefore, I, doesn't say Satan, therefore I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. He doesn't blame germs. He doesn't blame Satan. Now, he may use those as secondary causes, but God claims that he is the ultimate cause of all disease. In Deuteronomy 7, God says that he afflicted the Egyptians with disease, and he was going to afflict the Israelites with those same diseases if they violated his commandments. Now, he, in the same passage, in verse 15, gives a glorious promise of his being the God of healing as well. I've got a book, this fat, just goes through the Old Testament doctrine on healing, There's a lot. It's not just New Testament. There's a lot in the Old Testament itself. First Corinthians 11 says much the same thing that God made many in the church of Corinth sick, weak, and some had even died because of their sins. They were God's judgments. It wasn't something that God said, well, I guess I'll permit something to happen out there. No, God directly brought it. He afflicts his people by way of loving discipline. In fact, And in Hebrews, he indicates uh, you're not even loved by the Lord if you do not have that kind of discipline. He says as many as he loves, he chastens. And if you're without chastening, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Uh, Deuteronomy 29 uh, gives a reason why bringing these diseases is so great in their lives. We might think, oh, you know, this is maybe not a good testimony, Uh, We're supposed to be people who are blessed by the Lord. And here we got all kinds of diseases. And Deuteronomy 29 says, no, this is wonderful. This is great. He says, so that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say when they see the plagues of that land and the sicknesses which the Lord has laid on it, why has the Lord done so to this land? And he goes on and he talks about these people giving testimony to the greatness of God, his glory, that he loves us enough to bring discipline into our lives. That's the testimony of Hebrews chapter 12. And so the first principle that we need to understand is that sickness comes from God. Yes, he may use Satan. Yes, he may use germs. But that germ that you accidentally breathed into your, into your lungs and it made you sick is no accident. God intended it right from the beginning. He is the sovereign Lord over sickness, and that's the reason we go to the Lord in prayer, right? Uh, He is the one who casts down. He is the one who raises up. He is the author of sickness. He is the author of healing. That gives us hope to pray to him, okay? So I think many of us, Uh, are deists when it comes to taking pills whether those pills are allopathic or naturopathic we're just deists we take them thinking they're going to help we're not prayerful about them we need to go to the lord and say lord please help this pill to uh, bring about a difference in my life help the nutrients i'm taking in my food to make a difference in my life he is the one in whom we live and move and have our being And you can bet your bottom dollar, if you're sick, God wants you to be sick. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be praying for uh, healing. We're going to be saying, obviously, we should be praying for healing. Many times, God will do it simply so that we'll be cast upon him. Now, a second mistake that we might make is to assume that all sickness is due to sin. Now, this is a common mistake in charismatic circles as well. They instantly jump to the conclusion, you're you're sick? Well, there's got to be sin in your life. And uh, this lets the faith healers off the hook, by the way, because here it says, if there is faith, you will be healed. He didn't blame it on somebody else. If there is the faith of the, of the person being prayed for, they will be healed. If it's the faith of the person praying, they will be healed. And yet they pondered, oh, well, it didn't work. Maybe you don't have enough faith or maybe, maybe you've got sin in your life or something like that. But verse 15 implies that some sicknesses are due to sin. So we should not discount that fact. We should say the moment we get some kind of affliction in our lives, Lord, are you disciplining me? Is there something I need to be aware of? Are you trying to remind me lovingly that I need to forsake some sin? But notice that in verse 15, he also implies that not all sickness is due to sin. He says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That word if implies that there are many sicknesses that are not, don't have anything whatsoever to do with sin. I think the if would have probably encouraged that wife, uh, the diabetic wife of that guy in the beginning of the sermon. In John 9, verse 2, Christ's disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, they're immediately jumping to the conclusion many Pentecostals did before. Oh, there's got to be sin here. And Jesus says, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Here was a case where God says, it had nothing whatsoever to do with sin. I wanted this person to be blind because I wanted my glory to be lifted up in his healing. In Job, he also says the same thing. God himself denies that Job's boils that he had from head to toe had anything whatsoever to do with sin. God himself denies that. On the back of your outline, um, I have given a detailed listing of some of the various reasons for why God allows uh, diseases to come into our lives and other afflictions. Uh, There are also some additional cautions and instructions there. I'll just let you study that on your own. But James himself indicates not all disease is because of sin. Okay, the third question is kind of a trick question. It asks, is all lack of healing a sign that a person lacks faith? Now, verse 15 would indicate yes, that's the case, but not in the sense that was meant by Mac when he was talking to his diabetic wife. Uh, he was implying that she needed to work up her faith, that she needed to just try to believe harder, okay? that it was something from within, but faith is a sovereignly given gift of God. It is not something that we can work up. Verse 15, it says, the prayer of faith will save the sick. It will save the sick. There is an absolute certainty here, whether it's the faith of the person being prayed for or the person praying, if there is faith, it will raise that person from the sickbed. And that actually makes sense, since God is the author of faith, That means God intends the result. If God gives faith, he intends there to be a healing, is basically what I'm saying, because he ordains the means as well as ordaining uh, the ends. But what many people confuse with faith is not faith, it's presumption. Um, Faith is needed. Mark 6, 5 and 6 indicates Christ couldn't heal very many people in that town because God had not given them any faith. It says, now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And so faith is definitely connected with healing. It's very important. But the reason it's a trick question is that most people who answer that question assume they can generate that faith, that God can be manipulated if we'll just squeeze our eyes, you know, and instead of wishing on a star, we're wishing on a God. If we can somehow just bring ourselves to believe enough and throw away the insulin, do things like that, that God will bring the healing. Now, there are things that we can do to increase our faith. There's no question about that. That's different. That's quite different. Uh, for example, uh, we can increase our faith <clears throat> by immersing ourselves in the scriptural promises. And the reason I say that is because God chooses to give faith through the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And so as we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures, God brings faith to pass in our lives. So that's one way of increasing it. Another way is uh, watching God work, You know, witnessing the mighty works of God. Another way is by, is by fervently praying. Sometimes in the very act of praying, God instills faith in His people. Verse 16, says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, the word much is a relative term. If you have faith, it's not much. It's all. It's always. But the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much because in those kind of prayers, God frequently will bring that faith to life. And he's done it in my life many times. Um, Fervent prayer is uh, the same as what the Old Testament talks about, is crying aloud, prying out loud. It's God many times stirs up faith in the midst of that. Now, the thing I'm countering here is the popular idea that if you are a man of faith, that your prayers will always be answered. If you're a man of faith, that your prayers will always be answered. Now, this is kind of a subtle thing that people uh, get confused on. I want you to notice that here in James, faith is not connected to the man. Faith is connected to the prayer. It's connected to the prayer. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith. See, there were even tremendous men uh, like um, George Mueller who, it's unbelievable, the prayers that God answered in this man's life and the faith that God generated in this man's life, there were people like George Mueller that did not feel like they could pray for something somebody had asked them to pray for uh, because God had not given them faith to pray that. It's like they didn't have permission to, to pray that. And so he wouldn't pray for the thing that he was asked to, 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 to pray for. <clears throat> um. Think of the Apostle Paul. He left Trophimus behind in Miletus, sick. Here's a friend. Paul can't even heal. Second Timothy 4, verse 20. Let me give you another example where uh, God did not give permission for healing. And we can uh, use verse 17 here as a, as a background. It describes the faith of Elijah. Now, were all of Elijah's prayers answered? I think we'd have to say no. They were not all answered. But think of Elisha, who came after Elijah, was given a double portion of the Holy Spirit and was even more of a man of faith than, than Elijah was. And I want you to listen to how he died. 2 Kings 13, verse 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen... Now, isn't it odd that the greatest man of faith in the Old Testament died of a sickness? Isn't it odd that the greatest healer in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, couldn't heal his own eye problem, and he couldn't heal his, one of his friends, Trophimus? Isn't it odd? And I would say, no, it's not odd at all. This is precisely the pattern that, uh, in which God works. It's not the man. It's the presence of sovereignly administered faith. And I think we need to get rid of the idea that there are faith healers that we need to go to. It's not the person, it's the prayer of faith. And you know, it's so cool when God generates that faith. It's this sudden surge of total confidence. God's going to bring healing in this person's life. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are there. God arises that faith within you. It, it, is, it is really a cool thing. And so... Um, um, I think we should pray even when we don't have that surge because I've had times where I've begun praying and I didn't have any sense of faith or anything, but I've just prayed to the Lord as the generous God and it's in the midst of praying God generated that faith and God has has brought the healing. So we're not talking about being passive here, but what I want to say is it's not necessarily a negative thing when a person prays for healing and it doesn't happen. The lack of faith is not necessarily, sometimes lack of faith is a sin, but it's not necessarily a sin. Many times it's just a lack of God's permission. I don't want you praying for that person at this particular time, is what God is saying. Now, another question that often comes up is the question, is healing in the atonement? Now, if you've read very much on healing, you know this has been debated back and forth uh, down through the years. Initially, the Pentecostals said, Yes, healing is in the atonement, but because of their abuse of that doctrine, even many later charismatics said, no, healing's not in the atonement. And non charismatics, many of them said, no, healing's not in the atonement. And I would say, well, of course, healing is in the atonement, otherwise, there could be no resurrection of our bodies. The resurrection is the ultimate healing that is out there, and yet there is a timing. And I want you to uh, turn with me, uh, if you would, to Matthew 8 verses 16 through 17, so you can see that healing is in the atonement, and there's other verses we could look at, but um, I just want you to notice these words that he quotes from the Old Testament. Matthew 8. And then verses 16 through 17. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now, I don't care what evangelical commentary you look at in Isaiah for the context of what he is quoting right there, they all say that's dealing with the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Matthew is saying is the reason Jesus was able to heal any of these people is because he was planning to die to enable that healing to take place. Healing is in the atonement. Okay, well, let's let's move on to the second uh, thing. Here's where the early Pentecostals made a mistake. And if you turn with me to Romans 8, you'll see why. They assumed that because healing was in the atonement, and I think exegetically it very, very clearly is, that you could ask for healing, and it would be as instantaneously and always given as if you asked for forgiveness for sins. Can you see the logic there? Forgiveness of sins is in the atonement. You ask, you're forgiven. You can have a total faith that it's going to happen. They said, okay, healing's in the atonement, and it ought to be just as commonplace as asking for forgiveness for sins, and it ought never to be denied. Okay, turn with me to Romans 8, and I will show you that this is actually not the case. This is their first mistake. This is a passage that looks forward to a time in history when the whole universe is going to be renovated. And you could say the renovation of the entire universe is in the atonement. What does that mean? I can um, lay, lay claim to that atonement and there will be no more thorns on this earth, you know, and other things like that. God has his timing. And he talks about the whole creation groaning and travailing, waiting for the second coming. It's waiting for this redemption. Now take a look in that context at verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. In God's timetable, the redemption of our body has to wait to the second coming. Now, our spirits are redeemed right now, but our body is not going to be fully redeemed until the second coming, and so the resurrection is the ultimate healing. It's the ultimate application of the atonement to our body, and it's going to be applied to all of this physical universe. Now, God's going to, over time, be applying as a foretaste and a down payment of what's going to be happening there, all kinds of things, longer life, if you take uh, the Isaiah passage literally, and... You know, doing away with a number of different things, and every healing we have is a foretaste or a down payment of the ultimate healing. But there is a timetable to what God is doing, and so we can't just automatically assume everything that the atonement is going to be applied to, we can instantly ask for right now. God may sovereignly dispense it. We praise Jesus for that. But there is a time, and the time uh, for the ultimate application is the second coming. Hopefully that makes sense in in terms of clarifying uh, what we are talking about there. Now, if all healings were instantly available right now, just as forgiveness is, there would be no need for us to groan between now and the second coming. Like Romans 8 says, we will be groaning. In fact, there would be no sickness. There could be no sickness. There could be no death. If the if the atonement in its fullness was applied right now, we'd be resurrected. There could be no death. And so the bottom line of these first four points is that it's unbiblical to say that God intends to heal all diseases. If that were true, no believer would die. And we'd have to say Christ had a marvelous work of healing, but he didn't heal everybody. Uh, he left some for the apostles to heal. Remember the guy at the gate? Christ had walked by that guy over and over because he was, that was the gate into the temple. He had been there since he was born. Christ had to have gone by him, yet he wasn't healed. He left him for the apostles to heal. And there were some the apostles didn't heal. In fact, there were some the apostles could not uh, heal. Now, let's quickly handle point five. I've already anticipated this when I said it's really not the man, but the prayer of faith that's important. But some people get the idea you have to go to a faith healer in order to get healed. But James makes this something that absolutely anybody can pray for. There are some who are especially gifted this way, and so there's greater giftings and lesser, but anybody can pray for this. But notice in verse 17, James does not even bring up the hero, Elijah, to try to discourage us and say, hey, don't even try, you know? Uh, this is stuff for superheroes like Elijah. Uh, you common folks, you can't pray for healing. He doesn't come to that conclusion. He says, we need to be praying because, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Not a superman. He had a nature just like ours. And God sovereignly decided, you know, to give faith more frequently through him than he did through us. But, hey, he's no different than we are. And we can rejoice that we can pray for healing as well. Now, from James's perspective, you can pray for your own healing when you're sick. No problem. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And includes kids, right? A kid isn't anyone, right? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. The sick person is quite capable of praying in faith. And actually, this is such an encouragement because you're not around other people who are going to be watching. And you know, on a daily basis, if you've got afflictions, just touch that area and pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I lay claim to the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray it into my life. I know you're the sovereign distributor of that when and where you will, but I ask you for a down payment. I ask you for a t- foretaste because you yourself have said that we who are in the kingdom have tasted of the powers of the age to come, right? Okay, the age to come is going to be the full kit and caboodle, but we can taste, can't we? We maybe don't get everything, but we can taste of the powers of the age to come. And so every day you can, you can lay your hand on, on yourself and say, Lord, I just ask for your healing. And I rejoice that you are able. And uh, God many times will encourage you. I don't know how many times the Lord has answered my prayers for healing just of myself. But verse 14 says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Ordinary elders are vehicles of the Lord's healing as well. God delights in using the ordinary. Verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective Fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so any church member can pray. Any saint can pray for healing. Don't think that healing is a function of an office. It is the function of the Holy Spirit, and uh, uh, God delights in working through ordinary believers. Now, another question that comes up is if we should only ask for prayer for the big ones, you know, like cancer and, and heart attacks and things like that, and uh, I, I think there may be an order to these words with the sick person praying for his own diseases first, and if there's no answer, then going to the elders, and if there's no answer confessing his sins and then having all kinds of people praying for him. There may be an order there, but look at the gamut of diseases that God expects us to go to for him. Go to him. Go to go to him for, for one of those. The word for suffering in verse 13 literally means to feel bad. Okay, kakopathe. Kako means bad and pathe means feeling. Okay, kakopathe. To feel bad. You're under the weather. And he doesn't say that you should be calling for the elders for every little sniffle, you know, and you're feeling a little bit under the weather. uh, Or uh, the elders, you know, would be traversing households every day, you know. He says, pray for it. And if it continues on and you don't get any healing, God wants to challenge every believer's faith to pray for this healing. So he says, pray, just pray for it. And then um, there's another word uh, for sickness in verse 14. It's asthenē, and it means weakness. It seems to be a more prolonged form of illness. So perhaps you've prayed several times for yourself and you're still not getting better. Then you call for the elders um, to, to pray over you. And then verse 15 uses an even stronger word for illness that my Greek dictionary defines as illness or, quote, to be hopelessly sick, to waste away. Now, the point of those different Greek words, I think, is to convey to us there is no sickness that is so great that it's beyond the hope of God's healing. And there is nothing that is too small that you shouldn't be bringing before the Lord for healing. He covers the whole gamut of any kind of ailment that you might have. And we should say, Lord, I've got a headache. I'm taking this medicine. Please bless this medicine's interaction with my, my headache. And so we just need to get into a habit of it. Don't ever take one pill without offering up a quick prayer to the Lord. Now, in your outline, I've given a, a sampling of ailments. There's actually a lot more than this. Deuteronomy 29 gives all of his favorite ailments he likes to bring on his people uh, to, to discipline them and to teach them in various ways. But I've listed here things like boils, diarrhea, diarrhea, Itchy skin, bruises, hemorrhoids. And some people think, oh, come on, Kaiser. I mean, God's involved in all of those things. And I say, absolutely, yes. Every molecule of your body is upheld by the word of his power. And so go to the Lord for those things. And you will be amazed at how many times God instantly heals you as you pray for those things. Satan may hope to work all of those things together for my bad. But God intends the opposite, doesn't he? He intends it to draw us to him. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Let suffering drive you to depend upon the Lord. That's his purpose. In fact, in James chapter 1, just to remind you, he says, you need to rejoice that God brings sufferings into our lives. All of them are good, which includes diseases. I don't know why people think all other sufferings, they work together for good, but disease, that's from Satan. We need to be praying against it. No, God says, delight, delight in those things. And, and cause them to drive you to Him. Point B, when circumstances are wonderful, don't forget God. Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing songs. God should be the first one that we go to, and He should be the first one that we praise, right? And so when we've taken an aspirin, and all of a sudden we're feeling better, our headache's gone, and we're feeling cheerful, what do we do? We need to thank the Lord that He caused that aspirin to interact in our body, right? And so whether God works with means or without means, we go to the Lord, and yet, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we would have to admit that many times we don't do that. We're deistic, deistic in the way in which we approach these subjects. When, we, when everything's going good, we forget about God. When things are going crazy, we complain to God. We do the exact opposite of what James is talking about here. Now, the last question is, how do I look to the Lord in sickness? When we have sickness... First impulse that we have is to go to the medicine cabinet or go to the doctor, and don't get me wrong. I want to be the first to say that the Bible advocates using doctors and using medicine. In fact, I think it's a commandment in the Scripture. I think it's a part of the Dominion mandate, and the Scripture talks about medicines that we use, but. Those medicines and that doctor must never be a substitute for trust in God. In fact, that's exactly what got Asa into trouble. It says in Second uh, Chronicles 16, verse 12, And the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was very severe. Yet, in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So he was seeking physicians, and he wasn't even bothering to pray to the Lord. Lord, help these physicians to have wisdom And what happens? The medicine didn't work. Let me tell you something. I don't care how good the medicine is, and I don't care how good the vitamins are that you are taking, if God doesn't will for those things to work, they won't work. We need to be prayerful. We need to be going to the Lord. Now, on every level of sickness that he mentions, James therefore says, be in prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Another way of going is through the elders. The elders have to pray. different word in verse 15, still prayer. Different word for uh, healing from sickness in verse 16, still prayer, praying for each other. Now, because I've covered most of the material in point eight already, I'm just going to quickly wrap up here, but I do want you to notice that the onus of responsibility is upon you to call for the elders. Now, it doesn't mean that the elders can't initiate something and come to you and say, hey, I'd like to pray over you. But, you know, what happens many times in churches is People go to the hospital to get operated on. They come out. Nobody had visited them. The elders didn't even know they were there. And then these people feel sorry for themselves that nobody cares. Well, don't miraculously expect that the elders are going to know that you're in the hospital, you know, and are having problems unless you tell them. Call for the elders. That's what the the passage right here says. Now, let me give you a a couple of additional words on these elders. First of all, I want you to notice, and this has nothing to do with uh, healing here, but I want you to notice he uses the plural word for elders. The ideal for every church is that there be a plurality of elders, not just one pastor who was over them. Now, initially in Paul's church plants, uh, there weren't any elders that were ready. And so there were several years in the book of Acts, it indicates before some of those churches had elders that were established in them. They were already churches and there were, um, he sent Timothy and he sent Titus to uh, an already established churches to make sure that there were a plurality of elders that were present. And so, yeah, there is a time when there's a church plant like ours, but we need to be praying and saying, Lord, bless us with elders, elders with a pastor's heart. And we need to be in prayer for this whole uh, training session. Uh, We're in an anomaly when we have one elder, and I'm the elder. Actually, in in the PCA, uh, I don't even constitute an elder of the church yet because I'm an organizing pastor, but once the church gets to a place where there are a multiple of elders then the church has an opportunity to vote and say, eh, I don't think we want Kaiser here. Or, yeah, we'll call Kaiser. In other words, your call of me and your call of elders is going to be in the future. So at this point, we're not even considered to be established. We're a mission church. Okay, that was the, the first thing I wanted to point out. Second, notice that James's conception of the office of elder was not first and foremost managing a court trial. Now, court trials sometimes do have to happen. And it's not first and foremost, uh, you know, administration. It's first and foremost ministry. He highlights healing in the lives of these elders, their, their ministry of, of healing. And so ministry, not legalism, ministry, not control, ministry, not bureaucracy should characterize the elders of a congregation. Okay, I've already commented on the role of sin and disease. <clears throat> Uh, Let me just make a couple of additional comments on the role of confession of sin because James makes it clear there are some diseases which will not be healed if you do not confess your sins one to another. And I think it's very important that we understand this principle because some people could have been healed much earlier, I think, if they would have confessed their sins uh, one to another, if they had humbled themselves in the sight of others. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, this may take on many different forms. For example, in Job chapter 42, whatever the last chapter of Job is, Job uh, <coughs> Uh, actually, the tormentors are confronted by God, and they're told, you've sinned, and you need to go and confess to Job. And it was at the point of their confession and Job's granting of forgiveness that the, the, the blessing of the Lord was turned around in all of those parties. Now, the interesting thing about Job was he hadn't even sinned against them. And that was not the reason for his disease, and yet it was at the point that he forgave them that it says God turned around and he blessed him incredibly. And I think we need to do, uh, be just as sensitive. When somebody comes to you and asks for forgiveness, don't just brush them off and say, oh, that's okay. No, take it seriously and say, yes, I do forgive you. And let me pray for you that the Lord would bless you. And as we bless each other, we seek forgiveness from each other, many times it's in those kinds of contexts that God causes his blessing and his healing to uh, to flow. Let me give you some other examples. Husbands, humble yourselves before your wives and confess your failings to her. Otherwise, 1 Peter 3, verse 7 says, your prayers will be hindered. Wives, confess your sins to your husbands um, and uh, get your relationship right. There are many scriptures ind- indicate if our relationships are broken and they are not right, God's blessing will not flow. 1 Corinthians 11, why were they sick? Why were some weak? Why were some uh, already dead? It's because of their sins against one another. And so we need to get those straightened out. And uh, children, you may need to confess your sins to your brothers and sisters. You may need to confess your sins to your parents. You parents may need to confess to your children. We need to make sure we are right before the Lord. And if we do not, to the degree we take James 5 seriously, it's to that degree I think we, we are not deists. We say, yes, God is working in everything. It's not just supernatural up here in the natural down here the Christian worldview is that the supernatural pervades the natural it is in everything God is upholding all things by the word of his power and to scoff at the ideas I've heard some Christians do that <clears throat> eczema needs to be treated in a spiritual context like oh that's nonsense you know if it can be explained in terms of medical principles then we don't even need to put God into the equation And I say, that's a dangerous thing when God is out of anything in our equation. No, eczema is something that comes from God's hand, and it's only God's hand that's going to enable any medication or without medication for you to be healed. Now, I do want to comment on the phrase, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This has been interpreted in different ways, and uh, Jay Adams interprets it that it's medicine. So, you go to the doctor, and you go to the elders. Almost nobody follows him on that and I think it's a ridiculous interpretation myself uh, because they had much more sophisticated medicines than simply oil. He would have said take medicine and go to the elders if that's what he had intended and so I I don't think that's um, uh, the truth even though I I love and I respect uh, Jay Adams almost nobody follows him on that interpretation. Some people say okay it's a symbol and we don't need to worry about the symbol we just look at what is symbolized Well, that's never made sense to me either. Why in the world would we ignore the symbol and just say, oh, I'm just going to focus on what is symbolized? I mean, if we took that attitude, we could say, well, that's just a symbol. We don't need to worry about that. We're just going to be in communion with God and forget the Lord's table, forget baptism. And so my view is we need to take literally this passage. We need to, at least the elders do, we need to anoint people with oil uh, when we uh, we pray uh, over them. So why does God want oil? I don't know. Don't ask me. Why does he want bread and wine? I don't know, but I'm not going to substitute, you know, grape juice and, and hamburgers, you know, for it. I'm going to do the way God wants me to do because I want his blessing to flow in my life. So we don't question God. He's the healer, and we're in the position of saying, okay, God. But I do want you to notice, I do want you to notice that it's not the oil that heals. It's not the confession. It's not the laying on of hands. It's the prayer of faith. Faith lays claim to something from God's throne. And so he says, the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the word save can be translated as heal as well. And I want you to notice the certainty with which God speaks when this prayer of faith is present. And the Lord will raise him up. Not maybe, but will. Notice it doesn't say God's going to always heal every time an elder prays. But if he prays with faith, he will be healed. That's what he is saying. And in the Greek, it's very interesting Greek. It's the prayer of the faith will heal the sick. Awkward English, but the emphasis in the Greek is it's a special kind of faith. And let me read you a couple of quotations from commentators who explain the, the odd phrase there. On each of them, emphasizes this is a special God-given faith that gives an assurance that it's God's will for the person to be healed. D. Edmund Hebert says, It is not just an ordinary prayer for another, however good and sincere it may be, but the prayer prompted by the Spirit wrought conviction that it is the Lord's will to heal the one being prayed for. Douglas Moo says, Prayer for healing offered in the confidence that God will answer that prayer does bring healing, but only when it is God's will to heal will that faith itself, a gift of God, be present. Such faith cannot be manufactured, however gifted, insistent, or righteous we are. So he says it's only a sovereignly administered uh, faith. See Samuel Storms says that anyone should exercise this kind of faith can only be because God has produced it in the heart of the one who prays. Therefore, the kind, particular kind of faith to which James is referring in response to which God will grant our request is not the kind that we may exercise at our will. It is the kind of faith that we exercise only when God wills. Now that is so important to understand that distinction because it makes the difference between a submissive attitude in healing that submits to God's sovereignty and the kind of manipulative, <coughs> the kind of manipulative sensationalism of Pentecostal healers. We've already seen <clears throat> it's not God's will that every single disease get healed. And when they are healed, we've seen God alone gets the credit and not the awesomeness of the healer. And without an understanding of God's sovereignty, I think we can very easily turn it into manipulation of God. Obviously, God won't be manipulated, but we try many times. Listen to what David Hubbard has to say about those who focus on the methodology and not on God's sovereign mercy. He says, setting fixed terms which decide whether he performs healing or not, nudges us across the border that separates providence from magic and trespasses on God's right to be Lord. It preempts his authority to decide when and how to manifest his power. It makes our conformity to certain conditions rather than his sovereignty the ultimate ground of how he works. In the process, everyone loses. God decides when and where and how he will distribute that gift of faith. And the elders are just ordinary people. They don't have the gift of healing, and yet they see healing numerous times, being granted by the sovereign Lord of this universe as they pray, as in obedience to his will. I've seen healing of cancer, of all kinds of different things, down through the years. Does God continue to perform miracles? Absolutely. Yes, he does. I think anything else is... a uh, is a uh, a slam against his lordship. James does not attribute healing and other miracles to the apostles and uh, only to the apostles and to Elijah. He deliberately picks ordinary people and even when he picks a hero like Elijah, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced fruit. And so the clear implication is he wants his congregation to be people like Elijah. He does not consider it to have passed away. And so to me, this, this whole chapter is far more exciting than Pentecostalism. And I tell you, if you embrace the kind of healing that he talks about in here, it's going to strengthen you. It's not going to lead to emotional instability and immaturity. We've got a great God, a great God, an awesome God, but he works in an orderly manner. And so we need to understand what his order is. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your healing, we thank you for your power, and it is our desire, Father, to uh, 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 operate according to the order that you have set down, to be available for your spirit at any time that he chooses to uh, give the, the faith and to work through us as vehicles. And Father, we promise not to take the credit to ourselves. We are nothing, you are everything. And when healings occur in this congregation, it is our desire that you would receive all of the honor and the praise and the glory in Christ's name. Amen. I do want